0: This is the love that makes me strong This is the love that makes me strong Yeah this is the love This is the love This is the love This is the love that makes me strong This is the love that makes me strong Yeah this is the love This is the love This is the love Hello, and welcome to Dad-Daughter Dialogues, an opportunity to lift up me and my dad's relationship through discussion about politics, current events, and whatever else we can think of. We hope that this will inspire you to share and chat with your dad, be it your biological father, grandfather, stepfather, like a father, or any other variation. I am your co-host, Aisha, and I am here with my relaxing dad on this Sunday afternoon, Roy DeBerry.
1: You're here, here, Aisha. Thank you. And it is a relaxing afternoon. It's very beautiful here. We had rain yesterday, but today is just a beautiful sunshine. I had a chance to get up early and get some uh, tea and go out and sit in the uh, uh, chair uh, on the outside. And the air was very nice and clear and brisk, and the pollen was low. So, had a wonderful <laughs> morning. Uh, it, it's just good to be back together. You know, we, uh, we've we had some tough weeks and tough months and a tough year, yeah. and yet we can see, and at least some people, and I think I can speak for that as well, can see the light at the end of the tunnel, I think. And yeah. that's a good thing. I think we all wanna be moving positive as we move part, towards the latter part of 21. So again, just glad to be back and glad to be back uh, in this chair to chat with you today.
0: Well, thank you, Dad, and thank you for those who are tuning in, as well as those who are on Facebook Live. So let's get started. So Dad, as you you know, you were talking about uh, before we got online, you had read an article um, that just kind of captured what you just talked about in our intro in regards to some tough times that we have been through, although we have seen a bit of some justice. Um, but really, the sentiment um, is mixed even though
1: justice was served. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, what I had was a, was a, uh, a piece that was, uh, I guess it was published in today's Clarence Leisure, which is a Jackson newspaper. Yeah. And that's the, you see Mother Justice there and you see the scale there, but the, the, the writing says, but I should have been there for Brianna too and for Lando too and Tamir to and Michael and Eric and Ann and on and on and on. So that struck me as where we are. So we got a case where, and I wanna say, I really appreciate the jury in Minnesota and I appreciate the, the, uh, the prosecution for the job that it did. And I appreciate all those witnesses that came forward and showed a great deal of courage. And I appreciate the, uh, the DA, uh, Edison who had the guts and wherewithal and the courage to bring charges against um, that officer and hopefully the other three that would be charged later. So let me just say, uh, as you say, partial justice, I see it as accountability, at least for this one officer. And I think this piece is saying, but similar justice should have been done in those cases as well. And moving forward, we would hope for more, but we're going to talk about that in a minute, where we think it's going to take some policy change to make that happened. So I wanted to, I see the glass is half full, not necessarily half empty. Um, but I said to you earlier that it's, it's really ironic that uh, having experienced and understood the 14th amendment since the you know the 19th century and you think that there's equal justice under the law and you're a lawyer, well why is it that when you look at a case like this which seems to be so overwhelming in terms of the evidence, both in terms of what you saw but also what you saw in terms of what we presented and as yeah. a as a bystander you kind of watched it and see that you still have this I don't know mixed feeling about just how this thing gonna turn out. Yeah you know you know in your head that everything leads that way but because there's so much history compacted there that you are surprised still, Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. really awful, yeah. you know, that, that you're surprised about something that ought to be cut and dried but, but, but isn't. And I think it's because of what we know historically about the fact that so few, you can count probably on one hand, uh, police officers that have been convicted uh, for killing Black people.
0: Yeah. And, I, you know, it's interesting you say that because I I do Instagram live on Thursday nights at eight o'clock and it's called from where I sit. And one of the people that came on the line said to me, well, how did you feel, you know, prior to the verdict coming out? And I said, it felt like when you jump into a pool and you're holding your breath at the bottom of the water and you're holding it as long as you can, you're holding it, holding it, holding it. And then when the verdict came out, it was like I jumped up out of the water and I could breathe. But at the same time, I had pain in my chest because I had been holding the water for so long, maybe five minutes, six minutes as the analogy. And so while, yes, I'm happy that I can breathe, I still have this remnant of pain um, from being down there in the water. And that's how I felt when the verdict was read. I was happy that justice was served, but just like you said, you know, it, it, it saddened me that Justin wasn't served for so many others, Sandra Bland, Oscar Grant, Michael Bland, you know, Breonna Taylor, the list goes on and on. And so that was, you know, in that moment, that's the analogy that I, I came up right, with. Right,
1: that's right, and that's a, that's a very uh, powerful metaphor as well, like you know, you held when you got mm-hmm. that breath, when you came back up. Uh, but there's a lot of stress that was put on that body during that process when you, as you say, you couldn't breathe. And that was the historical stress that you are getting to there in mm-hmm. terms of that metaphor. That's right. I think a lot of people, not just Black people, but I think there are uh, European Americans and people around this world who probably feel the same way. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe they have, haven't had the same experience um, of, of dealing with this kind of, uh, unequal justice, really. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I heard these people talk about training and, well, you know, it's just the fact that the police department, you know, they need more training. Well, I live here in Oxford, which is a, you know, predominantly white community. And, yeah. uh, those officers are trained. They treat this community quite well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you don't expect them to treat uh, these folk uh, the same way that um, Florida was treated in Minnesota, it, it's just yeah. not likely to happen. So, this training thing is 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 not getting to the core. Right. You could talk about maybe some biases and uh, some other things with respect to cops and how they see people of color, but the fact that they, the fact that this hasn't happened in your Middle class and upper middle class white community tells me it's not a question of tra- it's not a question of training, right? Much deeper than that. But I just thought about that a lot when they throw out this thing about about uh, training that this is not, it misses a mark. It seems to me right. Much deeper oh, than and
0: that. and also you know the one bad apple because I was talking to one of my girlfriends who's white. She lives in um, Texas, very red city within a red state, and she said, you know, Aisha, when I was twenty twenty one. I got into it with the police officers all the time. She said, even one time I kicked the police officer and I dared him to do something back to me. And and I didn't even have a thought that I would get harmed or killed or anything like that. And I said to her, I said, I would never, that would never ever happen for me. I just don't even believe that. Now maybe I would get away, it would just be a, a just a wonderful experience. I would live, but I it, it wouldn't even come to my mind to kick a police officer. That right, would,
1: right, that right, right. It. And you know, and on a personal level, and we talk about this sometime, I talked about that in a couple of books that I've written, uh, articles and things like that. That's been written over the years. But on a personal level, the only a uh, bad experience I had with the police officer. And that was, you saw that in an article that we did in the Commonwealth Magazine was yeah. happening in Boston, right? Uh, quote, unquote, mistaken identity where uh, I was stopped. And uh, I think I was a freshman, a sophomore at that time driving a good friend of mine's, Hortense Spiller's car. And mm-hmm. she had worked in Kentucky and had a Kentucky license plate and it was a beer Skylock, And I was coming down one of the main streets uh, not too far from Roxbury. I think yeah. it was in the Jamaica Plain area and uh on Blue Avenue. And I was stopped. And the guy, one of the first thing he asked me, a big buddy Irish cop, when I got out the car was, Do you have a knife? Or do you you know and then the next question was, Do you have a gun? Wow. And I'm saying, you know, at the time, knives gone. Uh and then of course I was arrested, taken to jail, and then we found out later, um it was mistaken identity, they would look for somebody that apparently had robbed a bank somewhere and had a Kentucky license plate. And mm-hmm. they saw this black guy with this, you know, yeah. Skylark and Beerick, and they just stopped me and assumed I was the person.
0: Yeah.
1: Other, I'll have other instances where I've encountered the police and it's been very pleasant. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I've been speeding a couple of times and
0: Cops came up to me and said,
1: (laughs) you know, slow down and keep going. Uh, So I've been fortunate. So, on a personal level, um, I can't speak about the fact that I've had, you know, bad encounters with the police, even from a young age on. Mm -hmm. But, like you, I knew not to do certain things, though, because we were told, given the kind of uh, environment we had to deal with. But we look at this thing historically, we know that there are concrete examples. Where um, it's not about training, it's about the fact of what kind of biases these people bring to the table. And you're right, it's bad apples. Yeah. But the problem is, and not all police are bad. Clearly, right? Right, right. The problem right. is that when you got bad apples, why do you close ranks? Why don't you call out these bad apples, get rid of them, and and then deal with them? And also on the recruitment side where I think there ought to be, you know, and I worked with the department because I used to be a county administrator, right? Mm-hmm. And I also knew police uh, chiefs in Jackson, knew the sheriff in Jackson, we're pretty good friends. Yeah. So one of the things we used to talk about was, was troop recruitment. You you do a good job of checking on these folks before you get them. Have mm-hmm. they been members of the CLAD? I think that ought to, ought to disqualify right. you.
0: Have they been trained in South Africa? Right. right. Right, right.
1: That may disqualify you. You know, have you had obvious biases? That may disqualify you. A lot of that stuff you could do in your training. You know, have you been members of militia? Have you been members of the the Nazi party? Right. Uh, There are things that you could look for if you're doing your job. Now, I know in some cases, a lot of these police departments were just very anxious to just hire people and get them on, 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 uh, on board. And that can cause you some of the problem. But even if they slip through, And they get there and you know, because these guys usually have records going Mm -hmm. back, you know, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six cases where they've been written up. And you just kind of like, okay, you know, just pass it over until you get a situation where you have a a deadly encounter and somebody is unnecessarily killed, particularly on um, uh, black men and black women. So we know it's much deeper than that, but I just didn't want to today focus so much on uh, the, the uh, this one case, I really want to talk about the fact that, in the case of this jury, in the case of this uh, these people in Minnesota, they did step up in yeah. this case and and did the right thing, and yes. uh, they should be commended for that. Particularly yes. given the fact that we've had so few uh, uh, police officers to be convicted, particularly of murder, Yeah. you know maybe manslaughter, but particularly of murder for killing uh, a person of color, particularly a black male or female.
0: I agree, and I I, I pray and, and hope, um, and I use the word hope intentionally that this sets a precedent, um, that Minneapolis sets a stage for what's to come. I, I pray. I, I'm not saying that, and we know this, and Dad and I have talked about this that, uh, you know, that. The, the killings, unfortunately, will stop, but at least justice will be served over and over and over again, enough for the killing, the unwanted and unnecessary killings to stop.
1: I think it's a step in the right direction. You know, another example, uh, Ruby and I talked about this, my wife, right, having to mm-hmm. do with the young man that was killed again in Minnesota. Here's a situation where, and you were a lawyer again, Deputy Sheriff, who, whom I know in Benton County, uh Clay mm-hmm. uh Bats. And he used to say, Roy, you know, we should use judgment. Uh, you know, I was talking about this little uh, highway patrolman that, you know, stopped me once for, you know, because <laughs> I had not turned my lights on early enough. And, you know, he had right. a chip on his shoulder. So he came up and, you know, he was kind of nasty. He was black, he was not even white, man. Yeah. And so, you know, I stayed calm. And and uh so later on he gave me a ticket for. You know, driving with an expired uh, inspection sticker, and I knew at that point the only thing I had to do was take the thing up to the uh, to the clerk's office, and she at uh, the clerk said, "Mr. D. Barry, I don't know why this guy does this. We have tried to tell him it's a waste of uh-huh. time. You know, stop. Just use your judgment." Right. So the point is what uh, Bass was saying. Roy, I, I I hope some I try to teach my deputies to use judgment. If if a guy got something minor like that. Why waste your time on right. that? Focus on much more serious charges. The fact that the guy was stopped in the first place shouldn't have happened. Right. Uh, or the fact that the young man in the store you know, took a, what he perceived to be a, um, a $20 fake bill. But first of all, when you go and you're dealing with cash, how many times do you check the right. bill to see whether it's counterfeit? So that starts the whole trend. So the right. case of this cop in Minnesota, you so told you pull this guy over, you got one cop that's clearly in charge of the situation at that moment. The kid just breaks away, gets back in the car. So why is this woman putting a gun in the first place? Right. Was it a taser or a gun? To me that that's inexcusable. Right. You know, that's not about training. I don't know what that's about. Right. You know, uh, right. You're overreacting to a situation that you ought not be even acting on. Period. Step right. out the way. Let the man get back in the car. If he drives away, so be it. You'll catch him later.
0: Right. Uh,
1: In other cases, you just like this clown in the alley, you call for backup, right? Or you just say, we'll get the kid later. Right. Why do you put yourself in danger going into an alley? You can't see him because it seems to me, again, the person who is in the alley got the advantage. He kills you before you can kill him. Exactly.
0: That's stupid. Right. Right. Think like these people; these police officers go into this hunt mentality. Like I'm hunting you down because, like you well, said, not using this rational sense of is this really worth it? Is it worth? Well, it's too
1: militarized. For one, we talked about the before community policing. You mentioned right. the idea of when you grew up, you know the police. The police know you. I know the cities are larger now, and it's more difficult to do that. But you yeah. could make some effort to do that. These guys come around; they drive the car around. People don't know them. They don't they don't know you. They don't know who the criminals are. They don't know who the good citizens are. So it's just the whole system got to be reformed. It's a whole focus on militarization, on weaponry, on using force unnecessarily, unreasonably towards the citizen. That's not what this country ought to be about moving forward. And I think we need to address that with some major, major legislation.
0: Yes. And that's what we, you know, talked about. I had mentioned as well, my girlfriend, Rukia uh, Lamuba, I had looked on Facebook, I believe, or maybe it was Instagram, one of the social sites, and she kind of had a, excuse me, a commercial that really talked about how we can begin to fund communities. Because I remember, as I told you before, maybe Elementary, middle school, maybe even high, you know, we had a crime watch, but even outside of the crime watch, it was like these neighborhood communities. And so there would be cleanup days, there would be, you know, entertainment, people would have yard sales. And, you know, I hadn't really seen that in a long time. And I do agree with her that while we have the police reform going over here, we also should really be getting along with our communities and getting to know our communities so that we can be on the watch. Um, for good and bad, just to get to know your, your community folks. Not necessarily looking for the bad, but once you have a relationship, you know, you can sense when something's not right coming in the community.
1: Oh, absolutely, and what that does too with the young children, you know, we had the neighborhood watch as well. And we have police chief come around, we would have police officers come around. Little kids was just, uh, they saw the police as something to look up to, right? Mm-hmm. They wanted to be like them. And, and of course, the police, again, respond to them very positively. And so you wanna build those relationships because I think ultimately we need the police, good one, right. and the police need, uh, need the community. And mm-hmm. kids, if they see, if they build relationships, they gonna have a very different attitude about the police. If right. the police take the time to build some relationship with the community, they gonna have some attitudes that are different about the community. Mm-hmm. They won't see our community as being crime-written. They won't see all black people as a threat. You know, and therefore, when I come up to the car, the first thing I need to do is to pull my weapon. You know, right. I grew up in an area where people have guns, right? We mm-hmm. all do in the South. Yeah. But one of the things you were told is that you don't pull your gun till you're ready to shoot somebody. Right. So I don't understand why these guys come up with their guns already pulled right. when a person is stopped in a car. It, it, to me, that you know what what's what's driving that other than yeah. fear. Right. right but if you had a relationship going with the community and the people knew you then you wouldn't treat, you wouldn't see them as the enemy. yes You know you remember the example when uh, New Orleans during the flood and uh, honoree the general mm-hmm. who did an excellent job and these, these guys these soldiers these national guard guys was walking around with their m16s or m19s wherever they are you know like this and yeah. he says put those guns down. Yeah. You and I are in the war zone. These are American citizens. You don't right. treat them that way. You see how leadership is important too. Absolutely. So who is at the top is important, whether it's the mayor, whether it's the police chief, whether it's a general or whatever. Those guys, if they if they are good leaders, yeah. then these these rank and file people will respond in a positive way as well.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so interesting when you talked about Um, you know, N.W.A. back in the 90s when, you know, crack was and this war on drugs, they used to talk about how Black folks would say we feel like we're the enemy of the state, you know, or that we're not treated as, and and this is true, Greg Carr speaks to this too, about, you know, when you don't see another person as a human being, it's very easy to shoot. You know, you don't see them as a human like yourself. Of course, you know, just, you know, it, all, right. all bets are
1: off. <laughs> right, and we know we got all kinds of research out there going back many, many years about the other.
0: Yeah. And
1: that's right. If you if you see your neighbor as the other, then mean that means that neighbor is an abstraction.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, I oftentimes say jokingly, some of my best friends are white. <laughs> and, and you've heard white people say some of my best friends are black. Well, right. That's the abstract. What you really should say is my best friend is a black person or my best friend is a white person, because then it becomes personal. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get to know somebody on a personal level, they are no longer the other, and you yes. don't talk in the abstract about them. And therefore, you feel their pain and they feel your pain because you see each other as, as human beings, not as some abstraction out there. Uh, and oftentimes, I think with the police and the community and the community and the police, it's all abstraction. And what yes. we need to do now is personalize those relationships across the board. You're right though, about the community stepping up. I yes. agree that it's a two way street, that we have a lot of work to do in our own communities to, to, uh, to bring things up to par.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you even you know set an example of that. I just bought a home a couple of months ago and one of my neighbors I moved in an older uh, neighborhood in Atlanta, for those who don't know, and it's in a transition. Um, Many of these folks in this particular neighborhood have been here over, I mean, 50, 60 years, 70 years. Some of their grandchildren or children are still living in the homes. And, you know, when you came to visit you and mom, you know, I said one of my neighbors who's who's, um, elderly and may even have some physical issues getting around, and you saw that their grass was, you know, out of control, and you said, you know, I really wanna help pay for them at least to get the grass to a level where it's manageable. And to me, that was just hearing you say that, said that you came from this community idea where I, you know, I'll be honest, I thought about it, but it didn't cross my mind. And I was like, wow, dad, you know, that's a really good gesture. So I went over there and said that, you know, uh, we would take care of his grass. And to me, that's a part of building community, seeing something, And if you can do something about it, helping that person.
1: Right, and oftentimes, you know, it's a little thing that can make the difference. Uh, These are older people who clearly got pride, right? And probably doesn't like to see the the situation the way it is, but maybe feel somehow overwhelmed that there's nothing I can do about it. So I see that and uh, I have the ability to help in some way. So it was just automatic for me to reach out. Because I would like to believe that if I was in the same situation, uh, that my neighbor or somebody that came to visit my neighbor would reach out to me. So you're right. It's about community. And from mm-hmm. a community, you build a county, you build a state, you build a nation. And speaking about America, uh, we've lost it as a country to some extent. We see this in with the pandemic yeah. where people say, well, you know, I'm asymptomatic or, I got the shot therefore I don't need to wear a mask or you got the shot so therefore why are you asking me to wear a mask? but the problem, the problem is I am my neighbor's keeper to some extent right mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if we do it for ourselves then we do it for our community and our neighbor that makes the whole country greater right not less so. If there's one thing that we always like to say that make us great, is, is would be these sort of sorts of things. If we if we don't do those things, then why do we say we are one nation? Right.
0: Yes, that is that is such a good point. I'm gonna start saying it to some of my conservative friends that keep saying one nation. I'm gonna remind them. Thank you.
1: <laughs> one nation means one nation. Right. Under right. God, as as we say, you know, on the dollar bill. Yeah. Right. Well, well, let's well, put that in practice. Right, because uh, it seems
0: like it's the one nation unless it makes me
1: uncomfortable. Right, 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 or, or when we talk about rights, we talk about my rights, but mm-hmm. what about your rights? Right. In a democratic republic, right? We here together, so we share these resources. So my rights are not unlimited to the extent that they can hurt you. Right. We have to find some way for you to respect my rights and I respect your rights, but they are not extreme.
0: Right. And to know that giving someone else their rights doesn't mean you lose your rights. I think a lot of times some people get lost in that. Somehow they think because I allow an immigrant to be able to just even though they may have entered this country, not in the correct way. I still am going to treat them as a human. Now we can work through the legal system of what that's supposed to look like, but I still need to make sure that they have a warm place, they have food and water because they are human. That doesn't take away from me that physically. that doesn't take away from me now. We can have the argument that you're paying more taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But is it physically truly harming you to make sure that we treat someone else as? Well,
1: we see that with the example with the virus right now, which is you know obviously raging in India again, and some other countries, and we have uh, cases where in America we have people now um, not even taking the vaccine, and some states are saying don't ship anymore because the demand has dropped. Well, it seems to me one of the things I think we ought to do uh, is give. Uh, those, uh, you know, I understand from a nationalism standpoint where we want to make sure that people in this country are vaccinated, that makes sense. But by the same token, give that vaccine to other countries that may not have the resources to buy from Pfizer, to buy from Moderna, to buy from Johnson. Now, here's the, the, where's the win-win situation, right? So I can be healthy, but if somebody else in the world is sick, I will eventually get sick unless that person is made healthy. So, right. there's a correlation there. So, forget about the fact of our own Christianity, right? And <laughs> about the fact that we should do good. But it it's also makes sense from a health standpoint and an economic standpoint, because if these other people continue to get sick, eventually, with our travel being what it is, with the various, you're gonna get sick again, too. Right. Because I we have wonderful research institutions, wonderful universities who have been able to come up with, and we talked about that on one of our podcasts, come up with this uh, miracle really within a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we should celebrate that. And we should. However, there are various out there. So we could yeah. go chasing this thing again around the world, which hurts us physically, yeah. but it also hurts us Economically, So it's in our best interest to not think of the world as being alien. And the reason why I mentioned that, you talked about the people, immigrants. Mm-hmm. See, I've always had a problem with the word alien. Yes. Because human beings are not aliens.
0: Right.
1: right? Uh, they may be yes. somehow misplaced or maybe, um, you know, refugees or what do you want to call them, but they're not alien. They're human yes, beings. Yes,
0: please. If you hear this right now and you've been using the word alien,
1: please Stop, stop. using it.
0: Please stop. <laughs> stop. Just <laughs> stop. You know, we talk about this, you know, not to, not to get off the subject, but we have talked about the power of words and, you know, really I've been sitting in this day and I haven't even mentioned it to you yet. So podcasters, you are finding this out right now is that we have to work on language that empowers. There is so much oppressive language that we even use on ourselves as marginalized people.
1: Correct.
0: You know, like you talked about words like minority, words like alien, those words go ahead and other you. It, it puts you in another, not other other folks, I should say. It puts you in one category of privilege and it puts the other folks over there. Um, and so again, that helps with having this disassociation or they say cognitive dissonance, where you can retire back, where if you were a police officer, you can just pull out the gun. I mean, seriously, it, it, it can amount just, to language, and, and it seems like that's not powerful. a big deal, but it's really it's
1: a powerful. big, It's a big, big deal, and I'm glad to hear you emphasize that. It's a big, big deal how we define or how we get defined. Um, you remember, uh, you've heard Andre say, my daddy used to say, it's not what people say about you, it's what you think you are based on what they said. Mm-hmm. So you, mm-hmm. you do not ever as a human being allow other people to define who you are as a right. God created creature which is a human being and not an alien, or not this or that, or not the other. Because once you do that and become an abstraction, people can do anything with you and there's no remorse. Yes. Because you just become a commodity. And you know, of course, we know historically that's what has happened to people who were enslaved, that they made them into commodities and then treated them like so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, just talking about community and, You know i know that we we've had some really deep discussions so far but i am very thankful um, to have purchased a home and we've talked about this on another podcast which we may have not posted just yet to the listeners um just the importance of owning land i had read a um a little blurb yesterday from andrew carnegie that said the uh majority of those who are millionaires are wealthy folks who are wealthy here in the nation either own real estate or have made their money from real estate. And so I'm just kind of putting this PSA announcement out there again. I've just recently bought a home, so I'm not trying to say I'm all that in a bag of chips, but what I am saying is that I agree with that. And I know dad, you've all always preached that as well.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that we talk about in our book, you know, uh, voices from the hill country. And uh, I'm just, you know, so struck by these people we interviewed, and Mr. Henry Reeves, who was one of the leaders there uh, during the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, uh, was a landowner, mm-hmm. and one of the things, and was a leader there of the of the movement as early as the 1930s when he had to go underground because it was not uh, permissible for to use the name NAACP at that time or any other kind of organization. They had to be, you know, clandestine. Kind of yeah. uh, but One of the things he talked about over and over with the people that he was trying to organize was this notion of trying to be independent or trying to be self-sufficient. Because he said to be in debt or to be a sharecropper meant that you were essentially owned by somebody else. And so to the extent that you can get your own freedom, get your own way of being self-sufficient, owning land, owning real estate, owning something gives you uh gives you uh an edge. Uh it's almost like the woman Miss Robinson who had land owned us as well, who said, you know, voting child voting, I don't feel like I could be a citizen unless I vote. But she also was saying I don't feel like I could be a citizen in a Democratic Republic unless I own something.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. In other words, I, I want to be in charge of my own future, my own destiny. And I don't want, you know, my landlord to be able to come in and Kick me off the land because I may be demonstrating, or come yeah. in and tell me as we saw people having to move overnight yeah. because they teed off their land on. He said, "I think you ought to be out there work. The kids ought to be out there working the land as opposed to going to school." Yeah. And so when they would defi- when they defied this, that the old boss came in and says, "Pack up and leave." He said, "When? Today? Tonight?" Mm-hmm. And that meant people having to go and live in. Um, and run down shack or live in a barn in the case of these people. So this notion, what you just expressed the other day is, is so key. And I had that in my own ancestry with my grandparents and great grandparents coming mm-hmm. off, of, uh, off of slavery. They bought land. Yeah. How they did it, I don't know. I, I need to research that, but I know they thought it was important and it was important to pass it on because it gave them an account of independence that they wouldn't have had otherwise had they not owned this land.
0: Yeah. And, you know, just so you all know, maybe one day again, I'll post on uh, Facebook or even send to our subscribers a picture of the shack that mom and dad have (laughs) have done. This has been a whole project, you all, for those who are listening. So that is labor of love. (laughs) It's been a labor of love. It's off the grid with
1: with my mountain man, nephew, who who is who is a carpenter who helped me. (laughs) Uh, we put it together and we even have a story about the buzzers I might, i'm writing that down how we adopted some t- turkey buzzers
0: <laughs> gosh <laughs> yes keeper if you're listening but i'll make sure to share this with you as well yes i'm sure keeper has a ton of stories one one in particular that he shared with us was dad decided to completely be off the grid have solar panels and keeper had never, from what I can gather, had never put together such a large solar panel. And dad was basically like, you can do it. <laughs> Mind you, this equipment is extremely expensive for anybody that knows about solar panels, which I'm sure many of the listeners do. So dad has this huge solar panel in the backyard and kudos to Kiefer and dad for putting it together for the most yeah, part.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's again an example of ingenuity and not knowing, You know, a whole lot, uh, but but taking the ability to read and uh, read documents and sort of figure out for yourselves. And Kiefer is a very creative person. He's an artist. So... Uh, while I was sitting read, and my other colleague was sitting read, Keith would say, "Well, I think it should be that way." And I said, "Well, Keith, we got to do this right the first time because we messed this up, man. We just lost twenty five thousand right. dollars. So, 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 but, 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 but uh, we got it right. It took a while, but uh, yeah, we are off the grid. We're still proud of that. We were down there the other day and uh, joined our solo uh, off the grid uh, panels. And you know, now given the problem we're having with uh, global warming, or yeah climate change and what you want to call it, that electric cars and uh being off the grid is gonna be that's the future, really.
0: Yeah, it is. I'm telling you, Dad, I'm so proud of you. Shout out to Keeper and all the we kids. We were
1: just five or ten years ahead of it. That's
0: all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, we I thought and mom probably agreed to, well maybe my niece and nephew as well, we were like dad. Dad might be going a little see now crazy. We're not sure, but Dad, you proved us wrong. The innovation. I mean, clearly people are talking about solar, and they were talking about it in California as well. Of oh, course, of course. But, of course. but of course. you know, in yeah. the South Mississippi, we're talking about Oxford, Mississippi, with a huge solar panel. Right,
1: you right. Know? My brother didn't say he didn't. He didn't say he thought you I was crazy. He said I was crazy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. <So>. but. You <laughs> That just goes to you know, Landon. I just want to close, kind of close out with this as well. In the past couple of weeks, I've had several um, friends and family members, some who I definitely need to get back in touch with, and and you know who you are, in regards to finalizing wills um, for folks and really talking about estate planning. I had this conversation, a twofold. First part is my good girlfriend that I spoke about from Texas works in the area of estate planning. And she said, you know, Aisha, we have very ca- kind of candid conversations about race, ethnicity, et cetera, because she's learning a lot and I'm willing to share. So um, she said, I cannot tell you how many pieces of property that, I, that we end up uh, seeing given away and investors coming and buying them up. And she said, substantially, it is more African-Americans that end up losing these properties because they have not paid the taxes. And I mean, and she said, just to break it down, the taxes sometimes have been as low as like $170. And that land that has been in the family for X, who knows how many amount Uh of years has been gone. And so she is really working on as well. And and we talk about this because I said collaboratively, we have to do this, Um, especially as you being a white person and knowing what's happening disproportionately is to speak out on that and see if you can even just educate communities about the importance of holding on to that land. Um, and, And I'm seeing it here in Atlanta, you know, properties that, you know, once may have you know, the home may have been 65,000 is now selling, you know, someone buys it and they are now rehabbing it and selling that house for 400,000. And I'm not exaggerating. Um, And so I I just want to send a public service announcement out there that if you know, you may have some land or you have grandparents, if you're my age check in with those living grandparents or with parents just to see and ask about the land. That doesn't mean that you're trying to take it over, but just see where it stands. So at least when those those folks pass on, at least we know it'll be put in the hands of someone. That, that is
1: so key. Yeah. You know, when I was county administrator, it used to be this thing every July, they called it tax sale. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. These developers from all of the country in the world come in mm. and buy properties where people, and you're absolutely right. She's right, I've seen it as low as $100. Wow. or even $75. But clearly, uh, this is because the taxes when unpaid, for a period of time, and sometimes it's just a small amount of land.
0: Yeah. But if you
1: put all those parcels together, as these developers do, they add up. You know, uh, just uh, two or three weeks ago, I was on this, I moderated that panel with, uh, with Darity and, and, and Mullen, the, yeah. the, the two people that had written a book on reparation. And one of the things that they had researched quite extensively, over the years was the loss of black land mm-hmm. and how much land was owned by black people you know, coming off of, off, of, uh, off of reconstruction and all yeah. the years of uh, World War I and on through the great migration. Uh, that land is, is really just meagre now compared to what it was you know, 50 years ago or 40 yeah. years ago. And that land was either lost or taken or stolen or in cases what you just mentioned, uh, taxes not being paid And if tax is not paid for a number of years, uh, it's it's gone. And you got a certain length of time to reclaim it. But oftentimes, people are long gone, dead. Mm -hmm. Children are scattered everywhere. They don't know that. And so therefore, the land is uh, then um, sold at at tax sale. So you're absolutely right. These are important things to know. And as a lawyer, these are the kind of thing you can help. And she can help a lot of people with if they just seek that information. Because it's all public information. Right.
0: Absolutely. This was good. I enjoyed, you know, we didn't have a a set script for you all today, but we just wanted to definitely make sure to pay respect to the verdict that just came out quite recently and to talk a bit about what's going on in your community and what you can do. I hope this gets your wheels turning around how you can be more active in your community, how you can be more vocal in your family, you know. This helps me because I always hear something new when dad talks to me on this podcast. So I'm hoping this will at least inspire you, like I said in the beginning, to talk to your family, to talk to your community. Plus, the pandemic hopefully will be over soon. Let's get back in the practice of at least just getting to know our neighbors, getting to know our friends again, because we've been cooped up for quite some time.
1: Amen. I think we're ready for that. And I, I want to <laughs> uh, leave with something to Joy Floyd brother said you know, when he talked about appreciating everything had been done, he said, but at the end of the day, I lost my brother. Yeah. And there's nothing that you can do. Uh, we know there's accountability now. Know there's a little bit of justice. We yes. won a lawsuit, uh, got significant sums of money, which I hope will be well spent. But he yes. says, there's nothing that will bring back my brother. So I think that we have to understand at the end of the day, things come down to that personal level. Yes. And again, we have to get away from thinking about the abstract. And we have to think about the human being, i.e., ourselves and our neighbor. So your point is so well taken, and as always, I enjoy these uh, these sessions together.
0: Yes, yes, and if you can financially, if you have it. Um- in your pockets to do so, please look out to the foundations of many of the people we just named, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Sandra Bland, Oscar Grant. Many of them, although they did not receive outside of George Floyd the justice they received, that that they should have received, there are still foundations out there that support those who passed away and their families. So I encourage you and I, I challenge you to seek out some of those who we know have been lost and how you can still give to those families or also to the community where they resided.
1: And one final thing, again, we want to reach out to all our congressional de- delegations, and encourage them to get some real policy change with respect to criminal justice, i.e. Yes. no knock, i.e. Um, qualified immunity, because if we don't get these structural changes, uh, we might not see what we saw in Minnesota take place again. And we want That's to see, right. as, you, as you said earlier, continue to take place
0: yes let's continue that that power let's keep that uh that energy keep that energy going so thanks dad for being with us as you saw if you see us on facebook dad and i are rocking our dad daughter dialogue t-shirts we also have an online um uh store i should say so you can go to dad darn dialogues on facebook and you can click Right there, and if you become a subscriber, you will get one of these fancy shirts, even for yourself. Also, know that uh, Dad doesn't know this yet, but eventually, when COVID lets down a little bit, we may even have a podcast live in person. So, we would love for you to come and see our podcast. That way, we can actually answer any questions that may come from the audience, since we've gotten such a good response for being on Facebook Live. So. Thanks, Ed, as always. And for everyone out there, be safe and share love.
1: One love. See you next time.
0: If you would like to contact us, email us at daddaughterdialogues at gmail.com. That's daddaughterdialogues with an S at gmail.com. And let us know how we're doing as well as what you'd like to hear us discuss. Of course, we were on Facebook Live today, but also you can send us an email if you're just listening on anchor.fm or any other place where podcasts are played. Um, Again, as I mentioned on Facebook Live today, we have all types of merchandise. And if you decide to become a subscriber, you will get a free T-shirt with our logo on it. So thank you again for all the new subscribers that we have picked up along the way. And please share it with your friends and family. Just know that when you subscribe, your funds help to keep this podcast going. We appreciate you tuning in. And we're asked that wherever you are to be and stay safe. This is the love. This is the love that makes me strong. This is the love that makes me strong. Yeah. This is the love. This is the love. This is the love.